So the project for awesome was this weekend and everyone here knows that I'm a shill for John and Hank Green. So I just want to say we're recording this the same day that the live stream ended. The fundraiser will be closed by the time this episode comes out, but it is not closed yet. And so far they have raised well over $3 million for some excellent charities. And so I'm just very proud of them. And I wanted to put some like good news into the universe right now that the project for awesome, it's the biggest project for awesome ever. And they really did raise $3 million in 48 hours. <laughs> That's it. Do you guys have good vibes to put into the universe? I'm making chili tomorrow. That's my good vibe. That is I'm a good making- vibe. And I've been looking at adoption pets. So look at adoption. Adoptapet.com. Yeah. Facilitates safe private owner to owner adoptions for owners who don't want to take their pets to shelters, but know they need to rehome them. And instead of paying the rehoming fee to the person, like they're selling the dog, you pay the rehoming fee to a charitable organization through their site. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Hey Lexi, when did you learn about the birds and the bees? We studied insect life cycles when I was in the first grade, I think. And Haley, what's your favorite euphemism for period? Shark week, hands down, shark week. That is my least favorite. And I'm Alana and I love my IUD. I'm going to name my dog after my IUD. It's my favorite thing that you've ever said. It's the best thing that I've ever said. Truly. Love it. It's the Obsessed. name for the, it's Kai. It's short for Kylina. Obsessed. It's probably Obsessed. short for like Kylina brand intrauterine device. Yes. 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 So I just wanted to say that this is a, this episode is a follow-up to our Valentine special last year, but the content's a little different. So I just wanted to clarify that our previous let's talk about sex baby episode was about sex workers and people in the sex industry. This episode kind of takes the let's talk about sex baby title and puts it in a different side of things. So today we're going to talk about like advocates who relate to sex, uh, gynecologists, things like that. Is that a good summary? uh, Changing stereotypes because that's what I went with. Or changing stereotypes about women and sexuality and women's parts and people with vaginas is this good do we feel yeah and people with uteruses who that's not us necessarily always one for one anyway periods too so like all that stuff is happening periods uteruses womenhood sexuality all that uh i'm just saying this because i want you to know that before you go into listening to this episode um I will have a brief trigger warning before my my story, which I'm about to do. So if my trigger warning sounds like something you're not interested in, you can skip to Haley's story. So a trigger warning for my story, childbirth and contraceptive and abortion access, like access to healthy childbirth, access to contraceptives and access to abortion is discussed. Early 20th century racism, eugenics, There's some references to tearing down statues. So if any of that kind of stuff is something you're not in the place to hear, that's okay. 
you don't have to listen to this. We're going to talk about Margaret Sanger. And if you know anything about that, you will know that that is why I have to give you this warning because we cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of women's history. And Margaret Sanger got bad and ugly, you know, even though she did a good. So nothing's black and white. Life is complicated. Gray area, whatever. Okay, I'm going to get into the story now. Margaret Higgins was born on September 14th, 1879 in Corning, New York, a city west of Binghamton and south of Rochester. And I only say that because I have sisters in those places. So shout out to my sisters. A little inappropriate for a very serious story, but whatever. This is my podcast. Her mother, Anna, was a practicing Roman Catholic Irish woman and a mother of 11 children. 11 children. No multiples, she went through childbirth 11 times. These facts likely shaped Margaret's later life choices. Margaret became a nurse, completing her training in 1902 at White Plains Hospital in White Plains, New York. Also that year, Margaret married William Sanger, thus getting the name Margaret Sanger. We're talking about Margaret Sanger. They started a family in Hastings, New York, and they had three children. Eight years later, they moved to New York City and they befriended a lot of progressive era activists like Upton Sinclair and like the people in that crowd of progressive activists and writers and academics. Margaret joined the Socialist Party and served on the Women's Committee of the New York chapter of the Socialist Party, through which she also led women's labor protests across the Northeast from like Massachusetts to New Jersey. So she was heavily involved in advocating for like women's work rights. Margaret realized something that continues to be an issue to this day. Women were kept in poverty because of a lack of access to family planning resources. In the early 20th century, it was illegal to distribute any educational material about birth control because it was considered obscene material, which was banned from being sent in the mail or distributed as a pamphlet. In in preventing sending porn in the mail, they prevented getting women access to sexual education? Love it, America. And prior prior to that law being put in place, sharing knowledge of birth control methods at the time was common. Like women shared information with each other before that law was put in place. And then that law got put in place. And so they had to stop talking about it. It's fascinating. During her career as a nurse, Margaret saw firsthand the impact that repeated pregnancies had on impoverished immigrant families living in New York City. She saw the effect of miscarriages caused by lack of access to medical care and of abortions performed at home because there was no access to them. Deeply concerned for the lives of America's women, Margaret made it her life goal to improve birth control education in the United States. The Women Rebel, a publication advocating for birth control was first published by Margaret in 1914 because the publication contained materials related to birth control information and family planning. Margaret was considered to be in violation of the law because anytime we talk about birth control and family planning, obviously sex and sexual organs and things are involved and that was all considered obscene and could not be printed and shared. She fled to England and some of her friends uh, kept distributing the information in like birth control packets. Uh, At this time, there are no oral contraceptives and stuff. When we're talking about birth control, we're talking about like preventative measures. So just keep that in mind. That same year, she divorced her husband. A year later, she returned to New York to stand trial, but her young daughter passed away suddenly at the age of just five. 
For once, the common public perception of the era that women were weak and emotional worked in Margaret's favor. The trial was canceled and charges were dropped because how could a grieving mother possibly be held to any legal standard? <laughs> okay, interesting. I mean, listen, grieving, sad. But like, if you break the law, you break the law. Although Martin Luther King Jr. once said, you should break unjust laws. And I guess that's what Margaret was doing anyway. So there's layers, like I said, there's layers to all of this. There's lots going on. Margaret was not phased by this brush with the law. She opened a birth control clinic in Brooklyn. For this, she was arrested and spent a month in jail. But you know that phrase, like all press is good press and like bad press is good press? That applied here because Margaret's arrest gained her even more popularity and the attention of women who had money and influence and these affluent women could provide resources to help further her goal. Another positive to come from this arrest was a court ruling that doctors could give women birth control methods as medication if it were medically necessary. So today you can go and get birth control from a doctor if you want it. And it's pretty, pretty easy, quote unquote, to get. I mean, easy within a certain confines. Nothing's truly easy for women, blah, blah, blah. But you can go get it and you don't need to prove that you medically need it. So you might medically need it, you might not, but you can still prove that it is beneficial to you. Whatever method you're choosing, whatever, you, you don't need to prove that you medically need it. But back then, the law basically was like, okay, you can give information about birth control, but only if it is a medical necessity. If a woman can be healthily, healthfully pregnant, she has to be, basically is what the rule was. This became the loophole Margaret needed to let birth control get out to the masses because obviously doctors can be like, yeah, you medically need condoms and just give it out, right? So in 1921, Margaret founded the American Birth Control League to advocate for birth control and garner support in the medical community. And that same year, she also married an oil tycoon because more money, more money. In 1923, she opened a new clinic following that law staffed with female doctors who would prescribe family planning to any woman who asked for it, saying it was medically necessary, even though like technically they didn't need to prove it was medically necessary to those doctors. The doctors would just write it. That was like the loophole. In 1929, Margaret took her advocacy to the next level and founded an organization to lobby in Congress for the legalization of birth control for everyone, regardless of medical need. In 1936, U.S. law changed to allow doctors to prescribe birth control to any women, regardless of medical need. So the goal was achieved. Margaret retired, but continued to be an advocate. She helped establish the research, which developed oral contraceptives, now commonly called the pill. So she connected the donors with the researchers. The women who donated the money helped those researchers find the science to make the pill. The pill was approved for use in 1960 by the FDA, and now oral contraceptives are commonly used in the United States and lots of other things are commonly used in the United States to prevent pregnancy. Margaret passed six years after the pill was approved after seeing the fruits of her years of advocacy, which not many people get to see. A lot of ladies we talked about on the show advocate for something their whole lives and then die right before they get to see any sort of benefit from their advocacy, but she got to see it. And some of you probably know her name because the organization, the Planned Parenthood Federation of America grew from Margaret's original clinic in New York, the American Birth Control League and the clinic with the female doctors that became Planned Parenthood. 
Now, we've talked about all these things that Margaret did, all the positives of her efforts, but unfortunately, like many ladies in history, Margaret did have a dark side, for lack of a better way to say it. She, she wasn't a good person. She was a bad person who did good things. And there are lots of people in history who are like that of, of many genders, not just women, but specifically because it's a show about women's history. There are women in history who are bad people who do good things. We can be excited that they did the good thing, but also acknowledge that they're a bad person. Blanket disclaimer. Margaret's efforts to support birth control often aligned with the efforts of eugenics supporters and the eugenics movement was really big in the early 20th century. If you know anything about history, you know like the eugenics movement kind of led to what happened in World War II that we won't talk about. So it's like not a good group of people to be in cahoots with, to share ideas with. Um, but those eugenics supporters, they wanted to use birth control to prevent certain populations from reproducing. We don't know if that was Margaret's goal. There are some people who speculate or like use some of her writings to suggest she like wanted to make sure particularly black women didn't reproduce. It's interpreting writing that's complicated and hard to understand. And like, she was probably racist. We just don't know how racist because we can't go ask her how racist she was. And yes, she was in cahoots with eugenic supporters because they were pro birth control. And so it made sense for her to advocate for birth control at a government level with those same people. So Margaret wanted to ensure that women had access to when and if they got pregnant. And so there was that overlap in her ideas with the ideas of eugenic supporters who wanted to prevent some women from ever having the chance to be pregnant. So, you know, Margaret's like, let's get women birth control. And eugenics is like, let's force women to get birth control. But there was this overlining, like, oh, yeah, blah. there's like, a place where they align, right in the middle. Uh, in recent years, spurred by the removal of Confederate statues and the like, some have argued for the removal of statues and art and like namesake things that honor Margaret. Her name was removed from Planned Parenthood's Brooklyn Clinic, which was named after her. Unfortunately, these efforts to remove art that glorifies her are often co-opted by individuals who do not support individuals' rights to access safe birth control and abortions. So it's like a big complicated mess. So what I'll warn you guys is that some of the people who publish or talk about or advocate and say, Margaret Sanger was a racist and want to erase her history are not doing it because they are anti-racist. They are doing it because they are pro-life because they're making it seem like, well, Margaret Sanger was a racist who wanted to abort all the babies of women who she saw as less than, and then they're saying that as a reason to get rid of abortion in the United States overall, which is a fucked up, it's not a one-to-one -one thing, it's not a thing you can draw a line between, it's a messed up argument. In my opinion, <laughs> uh, yes, it is likely Margaret was a racist. She wrote problematic stuff about race in letters, in public information. I included a YouTube interview with her where she says problematic shit about race. You can go watch it. Educate yourself, know that she was a racist and a problematic person. No, we should not glorify her and we should face the truth of her history. We should embrace the truth of her history and learn about it. However, we should not allow her story to overshadow the very real continued fight for safe abortion access and family planning resources that are so vital to lots of individuals in modern America. A right which is actively being stripped from many Americans by shitty politicians right now so many pro-lifers are spinning this narrative to argue that Planned Parenthood is racist 
or even to a greater extreme to argue that Planned Parenthood is targeting and reducing certain populations. Like some people are arguing, well, Planned Parenthood targets black women because of Margaret Sanger. That's a complicated, convoluted thing. It's pretty fucked up. So in summary, feel free to call out Margaret Sanger or read information that calls her out. Fuck yeah, call out that racist hoe. But don't let pro-lifers appropriate your message to use for their own agenda. There are resources in the YouTube playlist and some articles in my sources if you want more information about the history of eugenics, Planned Parenthood, modern abortion advocacy, what it means to be pro-choice. Some of the YouTube videos are very, very heavy, so please proceed with caution. And the one other thing I'll say is I didn't include it in the YouTube playlist because I want people to have like context and warning, but in my sources, I did include a link to a YouTube video that was created by a pro-life organization and includes a lot of factual information about Sanger, but it is appropriated in a way that is used. It's true information that's being used to spread something else that's misinformation. You know, like this whole thing that's kind of going on where people like take a bunch of truths and hide a little conspiracy in it. They're taking all these very real things that Margaret did and they're hiding their pro-life message within that. So that's, that's the tea, sis. Shout out to the American Bookbinding Museum in San Francisco, because when working there, I had to write bios for suffragists in an exhibition or for this um, exhibition about like a woman's right to vote and what implications that meant. And specifically looking at the print, printing sphere. And Amelia Jenks Bloomer, we'll get to Bloomer, Bloomer, um, was one of them. Amelia noted, Amelia is known for her ferocious fight for women's rights, and that's heavily highlighted in her work for print, um, like printing and newspapers. We're talking about like Seneca Falls era, so 1850s-ish. So um, newspapers were a really big way of getting and spreading around information. So her writing and her thoughts about women's rights and all that encompassing was mainly through her um, newspaper that she founded in 1849 called The Lily. And I put some archives and I have some YouTube videos that talk about The Lily specifically. Their catchphrase or like mini elevator speech was designed to be a paper written for women by women. And a lot of like the problems they talk about like family healthcare, Equality amongst the genders, working rights are still true to this day. And honestly, I would love to play the sad game of, is this news article from 2020, 2021, 2022, or was this from the Lily 1849? Um, it would be sad how we would probably all lose that game because they're like creepily similar, but I digress. And the articles were originally just for the members of the Seneca Falls Ladies Temperance Society, which had formed the year before. And it did get distributed, but it was so popular that the Lily quickly rose to being one of the leading newspapers in promoting women's rights and educating women about what their rights could look like and what their basic human rights should be. And then just other educational things that women did not have readily access or the ability to go and just get. So the Lily kind of was a safe haven for that. And it also employed many women. 
because it was a paper for women by women. So print from print to popular popularizing dress reform. Bloomer like Bloomer's pants. You see where I'm going? So Amelia always denied that Bloomer's or the pants, and I'm talking about like a pants still dress combo. It's not what we're wearing today. Like I'm wearing leggings and a crop sweatshirt. It is still, you're kind of like, when I looked at it, I was like, am I looking? They're wearing a dress. Um, it's just the part that you can actually see that they're wearing pants. And this became really popular amongst these collective group of women in the mid 1800s. And I'm gonna put a caveat here that it is Western women wearing pants because this style was taken from the Middle East and Central Asia where tunics and pants and like what we would kind of call as joggers, but really it's like, there's so many different ways for how these pants are styled. The main thing is that it's tight around the waist, loose in the hips down to the legs. And then in the ankles, um, there's more of like a tightness or like cinchedness to it. There are photos that will be on the Instagram for Lexi. I believe there is one very good one that is in the public domain. So this kind of popularization in the West for fashion goes a little hand in hand with another activist, Elizabeth Smith Miller or Libby Miller, if you know her by um, that, like that's her more, I was about to say stage name. That's her, that's, she went by Libby Miller who started sporting the loose trousers. And again, what she also described as Middle East or Central Asia. And yes, this is gonna get, it's gonna take a turn. People did not, love the these pants right away but the people who did love them called them bloomers from amelia because they're amelia denied it she just did not want her claim to fame so bloomers as bloomers were also written heavily about just like what they meant for fashion and women's fashion and like how the chance to wear something other than a dress could be tied to women's rights was printed a lot in the Lily, partially because, or a lot because of um, Amelia and Libby met up. And Amelia saw these pants and were like, yes, please, let's talk about this a bunch. And like, let's loop it into all the talks that we're talking about. And that's again, bloomer, bloomers. And she's overall known for advocating for dress reform. I kind of hate the phrase women's dress reform for some reason. I, I, I don't know, like women, Clothes don't have a gender, like, but back in the day, they did, heavily did. And back in the day, the gender you presented as formed what legally you could wear. Exactly. So that's, that's the part where the like bloomers were like, you know what? We can wear these and like gain some of our basic human rights, which is shitty, but like, we love to see bloomers doing that. Because clothing had no gender. And with this, they look like, you know, the famous portrait of Napoleon standing in like beside the chair, those white pants that he's wearing. They look exactly what these women were wearing. It's just the jacket or dress that they were wearing had a more feminine cut, maybe a what you would think of a feminine color or that women were just simply wearing them. This ceased to blows my minds everywhere, but did your Women. American Girl dolls have a pair? Because as a young feminist history nerd, my mom bought me bloomers for my American Girl doll. I think I had it. 
I think I had those same bloomers because it came with a Samantha's nightgown dress. Oh, I didn't have Samantha. My mom bought these like handmade from one of those. You know, this used to be a thing like in the early 2000s. Like, yeah. Handmade yeah, yeah, yeah. stores. With I had old furniture. Ladies. Yeah. I had the yeah. handmade furniture. My she got bloomers. She got a bunch of historical yeah. clothes from there so that mm-hmm. my American Girl dolls could wear different periods of history clothing. And as a young history nerd feminist, that was very, very cool. Oh, clothes. love American Girl dolls. I could do a whole episode just of me patreon episode Haley talking about her american girl doll but yes i had the samantha bloomers because i had the samantha doll but we, uh, my samantha doll had green eyes to match mine but back to bloomers unfortunately this glorious quote fashion trend of women being allowed to wear pants in western culture came under fire and in the form of bullying and also trying to strip women of like their rights the limited rights that they already had so it dropped out of fashion like a decade or two later. It's kind of a sad ending, but like I thought it was interesting of like how you would get the name bloomers and now bloomers is kind of more known as like underwear. Like I always thought bloomers were underwear, but no, they're just a type of pants that were adopted in the mid 1800s in Western women's fashion. This story has a trigger warning for sexual violence and manipulation, as well as a very brief mention of conversion therapy, but I've put them all kind of together, so I'll let you know when that's coming up. Virginia Johnson was born February 11th, 1925, Aquarius Squad, in Springfield, Missouri. During the Great Depression, her family moved around a bit, uh, including to California, and eventually settled back in Missouri. Ginny later moved to, quote, the big city, Jefferson City, Missourians, please tell me if it's actually big, uh, because her mother thought that she would have a better chance of finding a man. She did have a secretary job, but she also made money as a country singer and entertained troops during World War II and ended up marrying and having children with a band leader named George Johnson. This was her third marriage and the first only lasted two days. But this is how Ginny was raised to aspire to marriage and she'd achieved it and had two children. Except, hold on, she hates it. This is not what she wants. So she divorced her husband and in 1957, she enrolled in Washington University, so-called because it is in St. Louis, Missouri. I don't know why it's called that. In order to assuage her tuition costs, Ginny became the research assistant of one William Masters, who was working in the gynecology department, which is red flag number one. This might just be a me thing, but cis men working in gynecology is weird. Weird. It's It's weird. weird. That said, I do think that more trans men should be encouraged to go into gynecology and any medical field uh, because the healthcare that trans people receive is severely lacking and a step to improving it would be to get more trans people in medicine. Side rant over, back to Ginny. Uh, When Ginny first started working with masters, her job was almost exclusively clerical, mostly doing like insurance stuff and managing schedules, but some sex workers that Masters hired for his research told him about faking orgasms. And to his credit, because this had never occurred to him, to his credit, he decided that that meant he should have a woman's perspective as well and made Ginny his research partner. 
as opposed to his assistant. And doing the least. Doing the least. <laughs> but something but the least. Together, they founded the Reproductive Biology Research Foundation, which later became the Masters and Johnson Institute. When it became Masters and Johnson, they stopped getting government funding because of kind of the weird, sexy experiments that they were doing that weren't that sexy. We'll get to that. They surveyed and observed hundreds of sexually active individuals, men and women, having sex by themselves or with other participants in the study. They learned so much. Uh, I'm going to use the word discovered here, but it's not quite right. It's more like observed, wrote down, and published for the first time, but discovered is shorter. So they discovered what is called the human sexual response cycle. There is a great video from the channel Sexplanations in our YouTube playlist about it, but to summarize, it's a four-stage model that goes from arousal or excitement to plateau to orgasm slash climax to resolution, like calming down. They also discovered that a vaginal orgasm and a clitoral orgasm are basically the same, size doesn't matter, and that old people still have sex. Hello, remember my trigger warning from earlier? That's now. Masters often coerced Ginny into having sex with him, saying things like, since they were watching all these people have sex, they had to let out their pent-up arousal with each other. Later, Ginny would say that she was uncomfortable with that and didn't want to, but she didn't really have a choice if she wanted to keep doing the research. They did eventually marry in 1971, possibly so that Masters could keep her around because our Ginny was so talented that other people wanted to work with her. Uh, also, Masters and Johnson published several books that demonized gay people during the AIDS epidemic and backed the use of conversion therapy, saying that it worked. Uh, it doesn't, and it's fucked. Ginny would also later say that she regretted the book. Ginny and Masters divorced amicably in 1993, supposedly because he was a workaholic, but possibly because Masters wanted to marry someone else. I have to imagine that it was amicable because Ginny was like, yeah, okay, I don't really want to be married to you anyways. Uh, but, you know, I can't be sure because she's not around anymore. However. Ginny continued her work and founded the Virginia Johnson Masters Learning Center in Crevecore, Missouri, uh, which was basically a library full of materials about sexual dysfunction. Ginny died in 2013 at the age of 88, but her legacy lives on in the form of a Showtime series called Masters of Sex, which ran for four seasons. It has always been on my to-watch list, but then I went through a phase of only watching comedies because gestures broadly, uh, but now maybe I'll have to watch it, even though gestures broadly. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on LadyHistoryPod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbomb.productions. Our theme music is by me, Garage Band, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're talking about musically talented ladies last time we did this i think i uh sang for you all i will not be singing this time um so think 
my vocal cords and your ears are welcome. <laughs>